Good morning again. Uh, it's quite the feat to uh, jump in and direct songs that somebody else chose. Thank you so much, and thank you, Mark and Chuck, for helping. Uh, what a blessing. We're in Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, and we'll be reading from verse uh, 57 all the way to uh, chapter 28, verse 7. Matthew chapter 50, uh, 27, 57, all the way to chapter 28, verse 7. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? The Word of God says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewed out of the rock in the rock and rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lain. Go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now as we meditate on it that uh, your spirit would work in our minds, in our hearts, in our wills to transform us into the image of your son. Father, we know that this is what will glorify you, and I pray that this text will work for that purpose. Father, I pray that we won't just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers. I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds and show us those areas that need to be changed for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been in a situation that uh, started off bad and then it uh, slowly and surely progressed to really bad, like to worse? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I was uh, young and uh, in Venezuela. I was learning to play guitar. And a friend of mine, he was learning to play the trumpet. And 
for some reason we decided that it would be neat to do a special music for a Christmas program. I don't know why we thought that trumpet and guitar would sound good together and that they should be involved in a music special, but we decided to do it, trumpet and guitar. And uh, we started, uh, I was learning, learning how to do the chords. He was learning to do the trumpet. And so I start off with the guitar playing. And um, I'm not sure, because I don't know how to play trumpet, but he didn't write, either hit the right note or start in a different key or something happened. And he was way off. I mean, he was way off from what I was doing. And, uh, and it, sounded, it sounded terrible. It, it started making me laugh because just the embarrassment of it all. And, you know, and, um, and he kept on playing. I kept on playing. And I thought somehow, miraculously, we're going to turn this around. God's going to do something. But each stanza just went even worse and worse and worse. I'm not sure. We didn't even end on the same note. I mean, we didn't even end at the same time. Like, I thought we were already done, and he kept on for a couple more measures. So that just shows how off we were. It, it was embarrassing. It, it started bad, and it just really went really bad. I don't know if you've been in a situation like that where things went from bad, and, and, and you hoped to anything that they would get better, but really they just got worse. Last week, we saw that Jesus' death brought a judgment on Jerusalem. The veil was torn from top to bottom, and the interpretation is that this judgment upon Israel was starting. Uh, but also, we saw an application of this, of this truth, that um, because of that veil being torn, the author of Hebrews applies it that we have access to the Father, and we enjoy that access. The other thing we saw was that... Um, there were some women, and they were kind of standing at a distance. And I mentioned the fact that uh, categorically, sometimes we will say or think that somehow standing at a distance is better than the disciples who were totally absent. And, and the temptation is, is that sometimes we create categories of spirituality that the texts don't give us. I, I remember uh, growing up, I went to a, a, a church that had a, a Christian school, I went to the Christian school, and they had certain uh, rules and regulations and so forth. And one of them was that uh, your hair uh, couldn't touch your collar, it had to be above your ear, couldn't be touching your ear, and it had to be two fingers above your eyebrow. And uh, it, it, for the men, not, not for the women. Uh, I now totally qualify for that haircut. And, uh, but, but there are some here that maybe not so much. And, and maybe we should go around and kind of check all the men to see how many. Where is that in the text? But they used it as a measuring rod to determine who were the spiritual men in the church and who were not. And that's the temptation to create categories of spirituality that God doesn't give. What did God say? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, the disciple takes up his cross and follows me. Not that he stands at a distance and watches me. So the temptation is to develop our own categories uh, apart from Scripture, and we shouldn't do that. Now, as we're going to be looking today, you, I, we must live in faith towards God because God faithfully accomplishes His Word. That, that's what we're going to be looking at. God faithfully accomplishes His Word. Uh, sometimes we might uh, say things that God is, is faithful to me, and it's not so much faithful to me as he is faithful to his word. 
and you're saying, well, you're kind of dividing hairs, you're kind of being a bit picky with stuff. But it's true, God is faithful to his word, not to me. And as I uh, accommodate myself to his word, then I fall into that faithfulness. Uh, we're going to be seeing that in this text. Now, the first thing that we'll look at is in verses 57 to 61, God faithfully accomplishes his word even when life looks bad. We see there in verse 57 that Matthew puts that it was the evening, the evening was coming, and there came a rich man from Arimathea. Now, it's interesting because how Matthew is developing his narrative, you end up having a bunch of people come around Jesus for the triumphal entry, and then slowly as the trial begins and so forth, uh, slowly that number starts to dissipate. In fact, in the garden, uh, not even uh, his three most close disciples uh, are there with him. They're, they fall asleep, and he's just there praying by himself. And, and then he gets tried, and he's there on the cross. And, of course, there are the two thieves on the side of him. But uh, in a sense, you get this idea, as Matthew narrates it, that everyone has abandoned. Everyone has gone away. And so it, it creates a shock when all of a sudden a character gets introduced into the narrative and, and it's produced in such a way that the evening is coming and there's a rich man. And this guy's from Arimathea, which is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Well, what is he doing in Jerusalem? Well, the easy answer would say, well, he's there celebrating the Passover, of course. But, but we know later on that he has a tomb in Jerusalem, which is kind of strange if he lives in Arimathea and he's got a tomb over in Jerusalem. Uh, I've visited several cities. I've never thought, hey, I should, I should have a tomb here. I've never thought that. So there's something here in this man that maybe he was born there, but maybe he's now living in Jerusalem. And his name is Joseph. Matthew has, has delayed to tell us who he is exactly. But he leaves the most important aspect about him all the way to the end of the verse is that who uh, himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. To become a disciple. It's not the noun of a disciple. Like many times the disciples were, were called and, and it's using the noun. Rather, they use a, a verb, the verbal form of the disciple as the one who is learning from Jesus. And it's a passive, which means that the subject is being acted upon. He's been chosen to be a disciple. By whom? Well, it tells us who. Of Jesus. Jesus has chosen him to, to be his disciple. And he goes up to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. This is very strange. Somebody who gets condemned as a traitor, you want to distance yourself from them. You don't want to go asking for the body. You don't want to be... Uh, uh, putting yourself in that close proximity to that person. You want to distance yourself. But here, Joseph comes close, goes to Pilate. He then asks for the body. Then Pilate ordered, and it was given to him. And so Joseph takes the body. He wraps it in this clean linen cloth and then puts it in a new tomb, his own new tomb. New in the sense that it's not been used. New in the sense that it was just now hewed out into the rock. And it, it serves a purpose to know these details because as you think about this, it's not like there's a bunch of other bodies there. There's one body in this new tomb, and it's Jesus. 
It's a particular tomb, and it's brand new. It's going to be hard to confuse it with, with other tombs and with other bodies, etc., etc. And, and then it says that he, he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. It, it seems so final, doesn't it? I mean, verse 61 kind of gives us this information about Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. They were sitting there opposite, which kind of informs us that they knew what tomb it was. It's not like they got directions and tried to find the place. No, they had followed the body all the way there. They, they knew exactly where, the, where Jesus was. And it gives us that information. But the finality of the, the, the entrance is blocked up and he goes away. We don't, we don't do very much, very often here, where you lower the body down into the hole. Usually the family all leaves, all the friends all leave, and uh, the funeral home takes care of that later on. The cemetery takes care of that later on. But there's a, a certain finality of this. And, and in a certain way, you, you're kind of hoping that it, it, somebody's going to say, Stop! Stop this! This is enough! Or you're expecting that maybe Jesus is just going to pop his head up off the cross and say, okay, I died. Now I'm going to come back down and we're going to get on with life. But what it seems like is that uh, things go from bad to worse. He's dead on the cross and now he's going to be put into a tomb. He's, he, I mean, they know this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, uh, Jesus said that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, of the sea monster for three days, three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They, they knew this, but even knowing this as the narrative develops, you almost feel like somebody should just say, stop, stop this. We don't need to go through all this. He, he doesn't need a new tomb. But it keeps on happening. It keeps on developing. You want it to stop, but it plays out. And sometimes God sovereignly allows things to go bad in your life and then to get worse. And you hope and you pray and you say, I want it to stop, but it doesn't. And I'm talking about situations like someone dislikes you and they go and they talk to your friends that supposedly like you, but then your friends also start talking bad about you and you start to wonder... <laughs> Is there really that many bad things about me that people have to be talking that much about me? I mean, or maybe the situation is you have an absent spouse. And that's a bad situation, but it gets worse when the spouse all of a sudden comes with divorce papers. Or you have a sickness, and the sickness seems really serious, but it leads to worse. You end up dying. Or an economic downturn. You end up losing your job. Things are more expensive. But it doesn't just stop there. You end up losing your home. The situation goes from bad to worse. Well, what are you supposed to do in those situations? Well, what's, what's a person supposed to do when there's all some moral evils, people doing things against you, or natural evils, hurricanes? For some people, they think the cold weather outside is a natural evil. It's not. It's God's blessing upon us. It, but... What, what do you do in those situations? Well, Psalms chapter 3, I think, is a really good place to look. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3. 
Here, David, he's running from Absalom. And, and what does he do? It, it's a desperate situation. We find in chapter 3, it says, O Lord, my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Absalom is against him, drumming up forces, talking to people on the, at the gate of the city on the road, saying, what's your problem? I'm coming to see David because I have this situation. He's not going to take care of you. I'll take care of you. And then one day he has troops and he goes in and takes Jerusalem. David has to go off running. What does David do? Oh, me? Oh, poor me? No. He looks to the Lord. And, and then he has to cross over Jordan. And what does he do? The forces are coming up against him. He continues to look to the Lord. When the situation goes from a bad situation to even a worse situation, David continues looking to God for help. What should we do? We should also continue looking to God for salvation because salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't matter how bad the situation gets. You have to keep looking to God because that's your source of hope. Now, we also see here that this uh, Joseph, he's got these resources. God has blessed him with some finances. God has blessed him with the fact that he has this plot of land that has this stone that he can uh, have a tomb. There's two ways to take the fact that he hewed a, um, uh, a tomb in the stone. It could be that he actually did this. And so if, if, if you like to picture things, you've got to picture this Joseph as like kind of this muscular guy. Or another way of picturing him is kind of like how when it says that he did it, it's kind of like how the Queen of England, when she says that she was working in the garden, <laughs> she, she wasn't working in the garden, you know, she was telling other people to do it. And this rich man, he could have had other people doing this, but here he's had the forethought to think about of his own death, and he's got this tomb. And what's interesting about this is that this guy is a disciple of Jesus, and therefore his resources are available to Jesus. He's going to allow Jesus to use them. That's what he has them for. It's not for himself. It's not for his own security. It's not for him to, to brag to other people. God has blessed him with resources, and as a disciple of Jesus, his resources are available to Christ. It's an interesting application when we think about it, especially when you think about the rest of the world. Venezuela has poverty, but I think the most poverty I've seen was when we were in Bangladesh. You, know, you might think here we're lower class people, but you end up seeing, hey, there's people even poorer in desperate situations. 
God has blessed us with resources, and as disciples of Christ, we use those resources for His honor and glory. Now, He's faithful uh, even when situations look bad, but God is also faithful. Uh, God faithfully accomplishes His word even when people plot against Him. He faithfully accomplishes His word even when people plot against Him. And we see that in verses 62 to verse 66. It says, Now the next day, the day after the preparation, that word preparation is a, is a technical term that uh, refers to uh, the preparation for the Passover. So now we're on the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Well, it's an interesting situation. They're here gathered together. They're there to try to control a situation because they said to Pilate, Sir, it could be translated Lord, we remember when he was still alive, that deceiver, that person who leads astray, uh, said after three days I am to rise again. This is the awkward moment in the narrative where those who are against Jesus, remember Jesus' words, and those who are following Jesus have forgotten his words. You know, it's, it's that awkward moment when uh, your unsaved neighbor tells you, don't worry, God's in control, and they don't really believe that, but they're telling you truth, and you're the saved person who forgets that. Here's this moment where they, they remember that Jesus said this. They call him a deceiver, and he's going to do this. They want to try to control the situation. They want to try to guide this, and so they decide that uh, what they're going to do is, is have some uh, soldiers be put in place. And uh, Pilate uh, agrees to it and says that, uh, yes, these, these soldiers could be put in place to guard it, and not only are they going to guard it, but they're also going to put a, a seal in front of it and therefore secure, secure the tomb. Uh, those who are involved in children's ministry and youth ministry here at our church, at some point you will watch um, a uh, kind of a series of lectures by Greg Love. He uh, does this thing on sexual abuse awareness. And part of his presentation where he does sexual abuse awareness, he talks about fences in that you develop a fence based on what you're trying to keep out. So if you're trying to keep cattle out, uh, you have a certain fence, but uh, a fence to keep cattle out does a terrible job at keeping chickens out, right? Uh, the chickens just walk right underneath the fence, you know, problem. Rabbits walk right through, you know, they hop right through. Uh, you develop a fence determined on what you're trying to keep out. Here, they're, they're trying to keep Jesus in. And, and their strategy is, they think that the, the threat is from the outside, and that the threat from the outside is going to come in, take the body, and then go out, and, and they're going to go around telling people that he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Little do they know that the threat to their control is actually inside the tomb. <laughs> the irony here, I mean, it's just hilarious. They think the threat to their control is outside, but the threat is already inside. And there doesn't matter how many seals you put on that rock. It doesn't matter how many soldiers you put in front of that rock. He's coming out. They can't do a thing about that. They have absolutely no control of the situation, but they want to control it so 
desperately. Now, I think there's a couple applications as we look at this, that God faithfully accomplishes his word even when people plot against him. The first is the Pharisees, they had strong convictions about the Sabbath. You, you remember Matthew chapter 12. There's Jesus with his disciples, and they're walking by some wheat fields, and the disciples start grabbing the heads of the wheat field, uh, of the wheat, and they start to eat it. And the Pharisees, I mean, they flip out. They're like, what are you doing? You're harvesting? You're, you're, you can't be doing that. I mean, they just flip out about seeing this. And uh, Jesus has to instruct them. But now, that was then, and now it's the Sabbath. And not just any Sabbath. It's the Sabbath of Passover. And they're going to go and talk to Pilate, a Gentile. Why? Because they want to control a situation. See, they, on one side they have these strong convictions, but on the other side they've got their desire. Why do we do what we do? Because we want what we want. And because we want what we want, we'll do what we do. So even though we can confess a certain amount of uh, convictions, at the end of the day, our desires will win out. How does a person live godly? They have to desire God more than desire self. But here, they want to desire to control their situation. Therefore, Sabbath on the Passover, ah, that's nothing. We got to control this. We got to keep him in the tomb. Many people live for their own desires. And they live very pragmatically. You shouldn't gossip. Oh, but I've got this gossip i got to tell. But you shouldn't gossip. You shouldn't lie. Oh, but I've got this situation that I've got to protect myself. I'm going to have to lie. That's where an individual cares more for themselves than cares for the glory of God. Now, another application of this is that um, we can uh, apply uh, some aspect of, I don't know if you've ever read Jim Berg's book, Change Into His Image. It's a great book. It has um, a workbook that you go along with it. It's a fantastic book. But he talks about different types of farmers. And these farmers are individuals who uh, live their life to produce certain things. Uh, the first type of farmer is a gambling farmer. This guy makes no plans for his life at all. He just uh, hopes that it will all turn out. He's this, uh, <laughs> he's this uh, uh, uneducated Calvinist person that, that says, God's in sovereign control. I just don't want to plan. I don't want to do anything. Uh, this person goes around life, uh, and then when um, something bad happens, they just say, well, it was, it, it was God's will. And, uh, or they'll say, well, God will provide. And um, uh, unfortunately, somebody will bring them something, and they'll say, see, God provided, you know. Uh, there's another type of uh, farmer, which Jim Berg describes as the controlling farmer. Now, the controlling farmer is the person who plans and plans. They work from sunup to sundown because they want to produce a good crop. They, uh, they want to have control of how they are perceived, then they want to have control of what they produce. And because they are wanting to control and they want to advance themselves and protect themselves, they are all about pleasing their own heart. And this is the sad thing because they will sometimes even pray to the Lord like these religious leaders. 
They'll go through ceremonial rituals. They'll do certain things. But at the end of the day, all they're about is promoting themselves and protecting themselves. And then Jim Berg talks about the trusting farmer. The trusting farmer is different. He works also from sundown to sunup to sundown, but his delight is in the Lord. So it does not matter what type of crop he's going to receive. He is trusting in God to give him whatever he needs. And even if he doesn't have the crop that he thinks he should have, he trusts that God is working in his life to grow him closer to him. Now, how do you know where you fall in here? Because here are these individuals, and they're making these plans, and they think that they're working on God's side, don't they? I mean, that's what they're thinking. We, this guy is deceiving the people. And if we don't control the situation, the deception, this deception will be much worse than, than what he first taught. So they feel like they are serving God in this. How do you know when you're following God, and how do you know when you're following self? Well, when you're following God, you have a love for God, and it grows. When you have a love for self, your love for control grows. When you're all about God, your love for God grows. When you're all about self, your love for control grows. If you're about God, then your love for his law grows because his law reflects his nature, and therefore you love God, you'll love his law. But if you love yourself, you'll want to control and you'll be more pragmatic. Everybody else has to do these things, but I must control and advance myself. I must secure what I have. Growing in love for God, growing in a love for his law, leads to a grow, growth in an attitude of humility that confesses wrongdoing. Because the reality is we can't ever live perfectly the, uh, the law of God. So we must be constantly humbling ourselves and asking forgiveness. That, that's what a life is. It, the person who loves God loves the law and therefore continually has to have a humble heart that's confessing to God and confessing to others. A prideful person won't do that. They'll give excuses for wrongdoings. They, they'll try to manipulate the situation to protect their image to protect themselves. They have to have control. They can't give it up. They haven't done wrong. They're being misinterpreted. You're understanding me wrong. Look at it from this angle. It looks much better. No, it looks stinky from that angle too. That's the difference between they're trying to control. They're not trying to grow closer to God. Now, as we look at this, the last part is God faithfully accomplishes his word. So go tell someone. Verses 1 through 7. It's just this incredible uh, situation where you see that um, it's the Sabbath. He, it, the dawn, uh, the sun is coming up. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they, they go to the grave and to look at it. And that word look has this idea to attend it, to take care of it. It's not that they're just going to stare at the tomb. They're going to go and take care of it. And behold, there was a severe earthquake. And there's this angel that had descended down. He had rolled away the stone, and he's there just sitting on it. Now, how does this narrative work in the other narrative? Because the temptation would be to try to somehow match up all the different narratives and come up with one story. But when we do that, 
that story isn't inspired. This text is inspired. So how does this function within what Matthew is developing? And in this context, how it functions is that it's opening a door for the women to be able to see what has happened to Jesus. He's not there. He's not. The, the stone is rolled away, and he's sitting there waiting to be able to tell, he's not there. I know you're looking for him. He's been crucified, but he's not there. And they tell him to uh, not be afraid and that he's going up to Galilee and to go tell the disciples. That's an incredible, incredible story to, to think about. That he's, he's done this. As we think about this, God faithfully accomplishes his word, so go tell someone. Uh, God's faithful, faithfulness pushes us to faithfully proclaim his greatness. The fact that he did this, they were supposed to then go out and tell the disciples. And then we'll get to chapter 28, 19, and 20. They're going to go out and tell the world about this. Why? This is something great that he has done. We should proclaim this greatness. He has accomplished his word. He told you this is going to happen. He said this is going to happen, and it has happened. It looked like a bad situation that went worse, but it was for the best. Now we have a hope, a living hope. Many people have hope in, in dead people. But this is a living, this, he's alive, he's not there. And it's been opened up so that they could see it. And God faithfully, God's faithfulness to his word reconciles us. You remember in chapter 26, verse 32, that whole discussion about uh, uh, the disciples were like, we're not going to betray you. And he's like, yes, you are. He said, but after I'm risen, I'm going to meet with you up in Galilee. He's going to do it. Because of his word, he's going to reconcile. He's going to keep his part. And if they will go up there, they'll also be reconciled. It's an amazing thing of his grace that he's doing. Now, as we've seen this, We've been looking at this fact that we must live in faith towards God because God faithfully accomplishes his word. And let me just end by saying that that's good and bad. The bad about the fact that God faithfully accomplishes his word is that in his word he says that those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their personal savior will be condemned to hell for all eternity. It's what he says. And he is faithful to his word, so he will do that. The good news is that for whoever comes, the invitation is open. If you'll put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you can have this living hope that he died for your sins in your place, to reconcile you, to redeem you out of sin. And the invitation is there to put your faith in his word because he faithfully accomplishes his word. Maybe you're having hope that this year will be different than last year. Some thought that year 2021 would be different than year 2020, and it kind of seemed like it was the same one, just one continuous long thing. And uh, maybe your hope is in a new year. It can't be your hope. Your hope has to be in God. And you, how do you know God? It's through his word. So you faithfully read his word, study his word, and put your faith in the God that's revealed through his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for...
this text. And I pray now that you would, your spirit would convict our hearts. Father, if there's someone here that has not been trusting in your word, that has just been trusting in their self, I pray that today will be the day that they will put aside their, their false trust and that they will believe in your word. Father, as we start this new year, I pray that we as a church will faithfully uh, serve you by trusting in your word. Guide us in this year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.